You are listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. Elder Law Answers is the leading provider of web-based practice development tools for elder law attorneys. We help firms reach clients with tools designed by elder law attorneys for elder law attorneys. I'm Rebecca Hobbs, the National Director of Elder Law Answers and a practicing elder law attorney in the Philadelphia area. In each episode of Elder Law Answers for Attorneys, we will chat with leading experts in the field of elder law, marketing, and practice development. Welcome. So today we're going to be discussing end-of-life planning, which is a difficult yet very important topic. So with me today is Barbara Mancini, and Barbara's name may not sound familiar at first to you, but as we get into her story and listen to what she has, you may remember her. So Barbara's story resonates with many of us as elder law attorneys and also with our clients. Um, So without further delay, we're going to begin um, me just kind of telling you a little bit about Barbara. So in February of 2013, Barbara was arrested in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and charged with aiding the attempted suicide of her dying 93-year-old father after handing him his prescribed morphine at his request. A hospice nurse and the police ignored her father's written advance directives and he was hospitalized and treated in defiance of his end-of-life wishes. Barbara's prosecution lasted a year, during which time it gained national attention, and it was roundly criticized throughout the media. She was interviewed about her case on 60 Minutes and National Public Radio, and has spoken to diverse audiences about her experience. She has become a vocal advocate for improved end-of-life care and increased options at the end of life, including medical aid and dying. So today we're going to discuss with Barbara the details of her case and really the implications of all of our clients and for us as well that are facing end of life situations. So welcome, Barbara, and thank you for being here and for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So we all are going to die one day. That's something we all have in common. And, you know, we advise our clients as elder law attorneys and individuals that are working with people at the end of their life. We advise our clients of the importance of having these discussions and the importance of, you know, people expressing their wishes and their values when it comes to end of life decisions. And also we tell them to complete a living will and advance directives. But even when clients have these discussions, even when they have done the advanced planning and executed a living will, things can still go wrong. How does that happen? Well, there are several factors that can undermine end-of-life planning. And probably the very first one is the imperative of our healthcare systems to save lives. In other words, death is the enemy to be avoided at all costs. So that's a big part of our underlying culture. Another factor is people who disagree with the dying person's values and wishes and who hold positions that allow them to override the person's careful planning or to disregard them. So these people could be relatives, they could be healthcare providers, or they can even be representatives of government uh, entities. Another factor is incompetent or inadequate hospice care. Now, we might all assume that hospice care will ensure a comfortable and peaceful dying process, but that is not always the case, as we will be talking about later. 
-hmm. And I would say the fourth factor here are the politics that surround when and how we're allowed to die. Mm. You know, end of life choices are as much of a political minefield as the politics around reproductive choices. And powerful groups have inserted themselves into what should be private and personal decisions. Well, let's talk a little bit about your dad. So he really is the center of this story and what has kind of brought you into this arena of talking about end-of-life choices. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, about him and who he was? Well, my dad was one of 12 children born into a family of Eastern European immigrants. So his parents were the first ones to come to this country. He was a decorated World War II veteran. He survived the Battle of the Bulge. Mm -hmm. And after the war, he came home, got married. He started his own business. My dad was a contractor and he did heavy excavation work. But he had many, many talents. He could build anything. He could fix anything. And my mom often loves to tell people how she never had to call a repairman for any reason until the last year of my father's life. I mean, he was fiercely independent. Even at the age of 90, he was still climbing ladders to fix the roof. So it gives you an idea of the type of person he was. Right. So tell us a little bit about, you know, did, did you and your dad have discussions about what his wishes were regarding end of life? How, how did he approach, you know, what his wishes were, what his desires were regarding end of life care? Well, we had multiple discussions about his end-of-life wishes. I worked as a nurse for many years. So we talked openly and honestly about what he wanted and what he didn't want. And he made a living will. He appointed me his healthcare power of attorney. He also discussed his end-of-life wishes with his doctor, too. I wasn't the only one who heard them. You know, everyone in my family heard them. So it was well known how my father felt about things. It was really important to him that his values and wishes be respected. So, I mean, he lived a long time, but by the age of 92, he was failing from multiple medical problems. And he was no longer able to do the things that gave his life meaning. He couldn't be active anymore, the things that gave him pleasure. So Mm -hmm. at that age, he made the decision to stop taking the medicines that treated his diabetes and his extensive cardiovascular problems. And then ultimately, he enrolled in hospice care. So take me back to that day in February of 2013. And tell me a little bit about, you know, what leading up to that day, what had transpired, and then what what happened and what transpired on that day? What can you remember? Well, on that day, um, well, my father had been in home hospice care for about two weeks at that point. And I uh, My parents live in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. I'm in Philadelphia. So it's about 100 miles from where my parents live. He had fallen the day before this event, and he was in terrible pain. He was in agony. The next day, on February 13th, I drove up from my home in Philadelphia, and I was there to see what I could do to help. My dad asked me to hand him his pain medicine. It was a one-ounce vial of liquid morphine. I handed it to him. He opened it, and before I could measure out the dose, he quickly gulped down what was left in that file. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know how much was actually in there. Uh, mm-hmm. I figured it could have been a pretty large dose. Two hours later, a hospice nurse arrived at the house, and I told her what happened. 
I wasn't trying to hide anything. At that time, you know, this is two hours after he took the morphine. My dad was not unconscious. He was drowsy though, but he was able to follow commands. He was able to answer questions. He was breathing normally. Unfortunately, the hospice nurse and her supervisor insisted that my father be taken to the ER to be treated for an overdose. Now, I resisted this because my father made it very clear that he never wanted to go to the hospital. In fact, that, that, that wish never to go to a hospital was documented in his hospice record. Mm. But the hospice called 911. And police arrived first, and then paramedics. And the police ordered my father to be taken to the hospital, clearly in defiance of his stated and written wishes. Mm -hmm. And after he was taken out of the house, the police then arrested me and charged me with aiding an attempted suicide. And in Pennsylvania, that charge is a second-degree felony, and conviction can carry up to 10 years Mm -hmm. in prison. Now, my dad lived for five more days. He suffered horribly through five days of unwanted and painful medical treatment that really prolonged his death. And he died of pneumonia and sepsis. And I then endured a year long prosecution and it was an absolute nightmare. I incurred over $100,000 in legal fees. Exactly one year after my father's death, a judge ruled that the case against me had no merit and the charge was dismissed. So take me back. You know, I'm sure that you've replayed that day in your mind hundreds and hundreds of times. You know, looking back, your father took all of the necessary steps that we tell our clients to take, you know, to have his wish, you know, his wishes honored as far as end of life treatment. So when you've replayed that in your mind and you've thought about how your father did everything that he was supposed to do, what do you think should have been done differently, if anything? Or why do you think this turned into the ordeal that it turned into? Well, as you mentioned, I've replayed this probably thousands of times in my mind. And I've looked at it from every angle. And there's no question that there were what I would say four elements that led to this ordeal. And at the top of the list was failure of hospice. Now I fully support good quality hospice care. I mean, we had relatives in my family who had used hospice in the past and they had good experiences. Mm -hmm. I expected no less for my father, but what he got was something very different. My dad was in home hospice care for two weeks with no medicine for pain, even though he said from the beginning that he was having pain. So at that two-week point, I called the hospice, and I had asked them to prescribe morphine, which Mm -hmm. is reasonable and appropriate. Mm -hmm. Morphine, by far, is the most commonly used medicine to treat end-of-life pain. And in fact, my father had been prescribed it in the past. Well, the prosecutor used that phone call as evidence against me. The prosecutor claimed that it showed that I was intending to help my father end his life. Now, what I didn't know at the time that I made that phone call was morphine had already been prescribed two weeks earlier for my father in hospice care, and the hospice withheld it. 
Hospice workers later testified that they withheld my father's morphine because he said he didn't want to take any medicines. Mm -hmm. Now, I will agree. He didn't want to take any medicine if he thought it would prolong his life. But he was taking all kinds of Tylenol, Motrin, whatever over-the-counter remedies he could find to treat his own end-of-life pain. Then... Later, when I received my father's hospice records after discovery, I, I was stunned to read what, docu- what documentation was in his record. And hospice workers repeatedly documented that my father was, and I'm quoting here, comfortable despite pain. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned, I've been a nurse. I, I had a career as a nurse. I've never heard such a ridiculous oxymoronic phrase (laughs) and my family and I vigorously dispute their characterization of how my father felt every Mm -hmm. time I spoke to my dad he told me he was having pain Mm -hmm. and I also think it's very telling that at my preliminary hearing under questioning by my attorney the hospice team leader stated that my father did not have a right to take as much medicine as he needed to relieve his pain. Now, that's a pretty remarkable statement because Mm -hmm. the United States Supreme Court ruled in two cases in 1997, the Glucksburg case and the Quill case, that terminally ill patients do have the right to have as much medicine as they need to relieve their pain, even if it advances the time of death. Mm -hmm. So this is settled constitutional law from many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. So the lesson I learned from that is that not all hospices provide good end-of-life care. So that mm-hmm. was the first element. Okay. The second element causing this ordeal is the law. Now, most people, certainly most mental health professionals, make a big distinction between the desire of the dying to have a comfortable and peaceful end on their own terms versus a mental health crisis that would lead to suicide. Mm -hmm. So most people do make this distinction, but legally this distinction is only codified in jurisdictions that have medical aid in dying. So at at this time, there are eight states and the district of Columbia that have aid in dying. And then the other part of the law that is at issue is many laws that criminalize assisted suicide have really vague statutory language. And for example, the Pennsylvania statute reads this way. It says that anyone who intentionally aids another to commit suicide is guilty of a felony. (laughs) That's pretty broad language. Right. And it's problematic because then it's left open to interpretation. So in my case, the prosecutor interpreted the law to mean that providing my father, my dying father, his legally prescribed medicine, which he was permitted by law and by physician order to self-administer, they Mm -hmm. claimed that it was a suicide attempt and they charged it at the felony level. They claimed that I assisted his supposed suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that caregivers have to fear arrest and prosecution for advocating for their dying loved ones. And for the dying, they have to fear having unwanted medical treatment forced upon them because someone decides that their end-of-life wishes will not be honored. Hmm. So that's 
the second element. I would say the third element of an ordeal like this is criminal justice in the United States. Hmm. Now, I think we're all aware of the, the issues that are going on in our criminal justice system. And once you are accused of a crime in the United States, it becomes very difficult to stop a prosecution. And certainly that's one of the contributors to the fact that the United States has the largest prison population in the world. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors have tremendous power, not only in their charging decisions, but in their ability to negotiate plea bargains. And the overwhelming majority of convictions are the result of plea bargains. In my case, the prosecutor demanded that I waive my preliminary hearing if I was to have any hope of obtaining a plea deal. Well, I wasn't about to plead guilty to something I didn't do. Right. So after my preliminary hearing was was done, I filed a petition of habeas corpus. Mm-hmm. And then we had a court hearing on that motion. And at that point, we finally had the hospice records in hand. Mm-hmm. And we were able to show in that court hearing that my father had actually been prescribed morphine a two full weeks before I ever called about it. And the original dose he was prescribed was actually much larger than the dose that he ultimately received. And Mm -hmm. here's the kicker. The prosecutor was completely surprised by this evidence. He had to admit in a packed public courtroom that he hadn't read the hospice record. Oh, wow. Now, you might wonder, why would a career prosecutor make such a glaring omission in preparing for this case? And I think it's clear that he fully expected that I would succumb to that pressure to plea bargain because nearly everybody does. Right. And apparently it was just too much effort for him to read the evidence. Hmm. So third element. And then there's one more element. And I alluded to that earlier. Right. And that's politics. Mm -hmm. And here's how it manifested in my case. The county coroner who investigated my father's death happened to be pursuing political ambitions at the same time. He was running for a seat in the United States Congress, and his platform was the sanctity of human life. Now, my father died of pneumonia and sepsis five days after he took the morphine. He was even given more morphine when he was in the hospital. But this county coroner ruled that my father's death was a homicide related to a morphine overdose. I knew that was an outrageous charge for him to make or ruling for him to make. And I later had experts look through my father's records and they strongly disputed his conclusions. But at the time, this coroner was appealing to a conservative religious constituency. Mm -hmm. And even during one of his public uh, campaign uh, appearances, he told an interview During the interview, he said that every case where he determines the cause and manner of death, he considers how his ruling affects the sanctity of life. Hmm. Now, I think most of us would expect that for death investigations to have any integrity at all, they need to be based on factual evidence and not on someone's particular political or religious views of the person doing the death investigation. Right. I was never charged with homicide. 
And I can only surmise that maybe the prosecutor had a, a medical expert look at the coroner's uh, conclusions and rule that they were unsupportable. Mm-hmm. But still, I'm well aware of what those implications were for me if a judge or a jury had believed what this coroner said. Right. So, and, you know, it's heartbreaking because my father's death certificate still says his death was a homicide. Hmm. So... So tell me, you know, I mean, as you, as you go through and you explain your father's story and all these things that happened, it's a little scary because as you said, you know, people that are taking care of loved ones or care providers, family members, I mean, do you think that this fact pattern, this situation could happen to others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm certainly not the only one who has been charged with aiding a suicide uh, as a person who's been caring for a loved one who's dying. My case made the news. A lot of them don't. Right. And, and I think one of the reasons why this could easily happen to someone else is because our culture is so profoundly disturbed by the concept of death. I mean, you know, as elder law attorneys, how many people die intestate? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people right. don't want to face the fact that they're going to die someday. Yeah. We don't like talking about it. We don't like thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think until the law is amended and criminal laws no longer equate the wish of the dying to end their suffering as the same as suicide, there will certainly be more ordeals like the one my family endured. And I really think that my case certainly raises some issues about what family members face when they're caring for a loved one at the end of life. You know, it's a scary prospect to know that the decisions you make can be judged critically through the lens of a prosecutor. Right, right. Well, tell me, you know, as elder law attorneys and also just as individuals who may be caring for a family member as well during the end of their life, what are things that we should, you know, lessons that you've learned, things that that we should make sure that we're telling our clients to do? or that we're making sure our family members do to try to avoid this situation. I know we talked about how your dad had done advanced directives and those weren't followed. Um, but, you know, we want to make sure that there are clients and individuals still are doing those advanced directives. Anything else that we should make sure that, that they're following through on to try to avoid this situation? Well, I would absolutely agree with you. Advanced directives still need to be done. I think they person's values and wishes need to be discussed with as many people as possible within that person's circle, whether it's uh, relatives, loved ones, and certainly healthcare providers. The more people who are aware of those wishes, the better it is. And I think another thing that people need to do is to be well-informed about their rights. And if you're going to choose certain end-of-life options like hospice care, uh, do a little research, and we'll be talking about that soon but um you know you you cannot just assume that these care providers are going to do what they're supposed to do and i i made that assumption i was very wrong about that and another thing i think is very important is that we all need to get involved in the political process Hmm. and as elder law attorneys i think you're in a great position to be advocates for people facing issues. I mean, not only preparing wills, but for issues like this. I mean, it's a tragic thing to happen to anyone. I don't want to see it happen to anyone. And that's why I've chosen to speak out about it. Right. 
Right. Now, Barbara, tell me a little bit. I know that you're, you've written a book that you plan to have released soon. Tell our listeners a little bit about the book that you've written and where they could find it. And also, if they want to connect with you, how they could do that. Okay. Well, I wrote a book. I, I call it an investigative memoir. Okay. It's, it's my story and my story of my father. Plus, I did an in-depth examination of all these factors that contributed to our family's end-of-life ordeal. So the title is Cruel Death, Heartless Aftermath. It's being published by Sunbury Press, and it's going to be released this fall. Our target date is late September. So, I mean, it will be available on Amazon, or I'm going to have a website up. It can be purchased on there, and hopefully in the local bookstores. Uh, if, if anyone wants to contact me, I have a LinkedIn account, and then I'll have my contact information on the website, too, once, that, once that's up. Great. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you all for listening to Elder Law Answers for Attorneys. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague. Please subscribe on iTunes and find all of our past episodes at podcast.elderlawanswers.com. See you next time.